Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Tim Drum. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at EBC and resident quick change expert. <laughs> it's always a blessing to be able to turn uh, to God's word together. Uh, let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for the truth of your word. Uh, work in and through us now, Lord. Expose areas where we need to grow. Uh, expose where we need to change. And Lord, I pray uh, for those in here who do not know you. Lord, would you soften their hearts this morning to hear your word, to believe in Christ, and to come to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like you to imagine with me this morning uh, for a moment a man in the middle of a beautiful, lavish garden. He works daily to maintain this garden. It is picture perfect in its growth. The pathways are free from weeds, as is the dirt surrounding all of the foliage. Shrubs are shaped with precision and accuracy. Flowers are clipped at just the right time. Yet, in the far corner of this beautiful garden grows a very small thorn bush. The man has noticed it, but being so busy with all of the other tasks in the garden, kind of ignores it for a time. Get to it later, so he tells himself. Slowly, he begins to unintentionally avoid that area of the garden to avoid seeing the bush. And so it grows larger. After some time, he returns to the corner thinking he may have some time now to do something about this, this problem, but finds that the thorns have grown fiercely large and sprouted everywhere, making it very difficult to handle even with thick gloves. After much pain in trying to get to the heart of the bush, the man decides he's going to have to put off dealing with it until he can use some more extensive means to get rid of it. Discouraged, bandaged, the man returns to tend to the rest of the garden. But over time, the thorn bush begins to grow more destructive as it takes out nearby garden beds. Unwilling to do something about it, the man just continues to focus on what's left. The thorn bush continues to take over. The man becomes more and more discouraged. Years go by and he spends less and less time in the garden until the once pristine oasis turns into a nest of thorns. Now, this is a dramatic picture of the seriousness of unforgiveness. The opposite side of forgiveness is bitterness seen in the growing thorn bush. And when we allow bitterness to fester in our hearts toward one another, continually let unforgiveness take root, we destroy relationships and the unity that God has called us to maintain. There are countless acquaintances, businesses, marriages, friendships, families that are all falling apart because one or both people in the relationship have allowed bitterness to fester for years or maybe even decades. The emotions consume all consciousness. They kill communication and cultivate continuous conflict. Marriages are devastated. Children rebel Siblings fight, friends part ways, all because of a lack of forgiveness. This issue of forgiveness, as our title indicates this morning, 
is a non-negotiable for community discipleship. It is a non-negotiable. Put positively, forgiving one another must exist in the body of Christ if community discipleship is going to thrive for everyone. It must exist. Our passage this morning is in Matthew chapter 18, speaks directly to the necessity of forgiveness. And Jesus really builds up to this point uh, through a logical flow of conversation and instruction of others there in Matthew 18. Leading up to verse 21, where we will begin, Jesus talks about leaving the 99 to go after the one sheep who has gone astray. Then right before our section that we'll get into, Jesus explains the steps of church discipline. What do you do when a brother is in unrepentant sin? How do you handle that brother? And that brings us to where Jesus here addresses this fundamental issue of forgiveness and what forgiveness looks like in the kingdom of God. Well, please turn, if you've not already, to Matthew chapter 18 in your Bible. And we will see in verses 21 through 35, we will see five attributes of true forgiveness. Five attributes of true forgiveness. First, let's look at how your forgiveness should be limitless. Your forgiveness should be limitless. So what's just taken place? Jesus describes the process of church discipline, and then his disciples are standing there, and Peter uh, asks a question. He expresses what we all feel sometimes when we're sinned against. Look at verse 21 in Matthew 18. He says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So Peter here is talking about someone who has offended him, someone who's fallen short and done wrong specifically against him. And he asks if forgiving him seven times is enough. If I forgive him seven times, is, is that good? And then I can, I can be done forgiving him after that. This may seem like a silly suggestion to us, but at the time, the Jewish rabbis had established that three was the sufficient number of times to forgive a brother. And after that, forgiveness was unnecessary. So they took... Uh, this principle, they drew it out of a, a verse in Amos where God says that he will not forgive the, a city of their fourth transgression. So they took that obscure passage and made it into a, a law that, that they walked by. One rabbi explains, he who begs for forgiveness must not do so more than three times. It's like, don't even ask for it because you're not gonna get it. So Peter, no doubt, with his seven times, is feeling like he's incredibly gracious and loving here. By more than doubling the standard of forgiveness in the day, he must have been confident that his generosity would impress Jesus. But look at how Jesus responds. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So 70 times seven is the number... Jesus gives to Peter, that's 490. I used a calculator. <laughs> Jesus took Peter's number, multiplies it by itself, and then times 10 to really just come up with a number that's beyond keeping track of. If you're looking at the ESV right now, you think I've made a mistake. Uh, there's some debate on whether it should be translated 77 times or 70 times seven. Um, we could do a deep dive into proper translation of Greek numbers, but that would be outside of being beneficial this morning. Um, so, and it would really miss the point of what Jesus is trying to communicate. Uh, the number is not the issue. If I were to, to wheel in on a, on a dolly, a 55-gallon drum full of sand, and said, how many granules of sand are in the, this drum? 
He says, well, Tim, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of sand in the drum. If I dumped out half of it and then asked the question again, you'd be like, there's still a lot of sand in the drum. Right? That's the point. Whether it's 77 or 490, the principle is the same. Christ is giving them a number that's just surpassed the, the, what you would keep track of. Jesus obviously isn't saying that you keep like a, a, little, a little booklet in your back pocket and keep tally marks when someone sinned against you. When you get to 491, you can just cut them off. Right? And God's okay with that. 490 is enough. No, and that's because forgiveness is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of calculation. Jesus wants to display here that forgiveness is not based on how long you can put up with someone, but on your bountiful love for that person. Your forgiveness should be endless. It should be limitless. Now, I don't know about you, but this brings instant conviction to my life. Uh, How easily can I carry a grudge? How quickly can I allow bitterness to linger in my heart toward my wife or frustration toward my children or against students who offend me personally and I struggle to shake it? None of your kids, obviously. Other kids (laughs) out there. So you have to ask yourself, when or maybe who do you have the most trouble forgiving? Often it's those who are closest to you or should be? Do you have extended family, maybe, that you've found it easier to just avoid speaking to instead of forgiving and restoring? Christ calls us to have limitless forgiveness toward others. And this conversation with Peter launches Jesus now into an illustrative example of what forgiveness should and should not look like And in this parable, we see our second attribute of true forgiveness, and that is that your forgiveness should be compassionate. Your forgiveness should be limitless, and your forgiveness should be compassionate. In verse 23, Jesus sets the scene for this story. Look there. It says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slave this is common in Jesus' parables where he is presenting them to describe the kingdom of heaven. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? This is a reference to the kingdom that we all as believers belong to. We are part of the kingdom of heaven. So Christ is describing what forgiveness looks like among believers. What should it look like? This kingdom theme is prevalent throughout the book of Matthew. It's how Jesus and John the Baptist begin their ministry They come on the scene and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of forgiveness, as we will continue to see. It's a kingdom where the forgiven, you and I, constantly forgive one another. The forgiveness seen throughout this passage is reminiscent of Christ's prayer in Matthew 6, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here, Jesus describes this king who wanted to get his affairs in order. The verbiage here refers to legal, contractual, written monetary debts. He has certificates of debt against these servants. But the king runs into a big problem. Look at verse 24. When the king had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents. I want to try to give you an idea of how much this is. 
Uh, It's most likely that this talent was a Tyrian or Attic talent, which was about 6,000 denarii. And you're thinking, Tim, that just really clears things up for me. I'm glad you shared that. Stick with me. We've got to do a little math here, okay? A servant commonly worked at a rate of about one denarius a day, so they would get about six denarii a week, which means it would have taken 1,000 weeks to earn one talent. 1,000 weeks, that's 19 years. So 19 years to earn one talent. Uh, When you do the math on this servant's debt of 10,000 talents, that is 190,000 years he would have to work to pay off this debt, all the while not spending any of it. And so the point is, this debt is absolutely impossible for him to pay. It's unfathomable. That's the point. The debt owed to the king was unpayable. It was unattainable for this man. Like drilling through the earth with a butter knife, he would never see the other end of his debt. He was hopelessly and unimaginably indebted to the king. Verse 25, we see the king's decision in how to handle this debt. What's he going to do about it? Verse 25, since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So by selling this man and his family and all that he owns, the king would at least make back some amount of money, more than he would if the the servant tried to pay him some amount. Selling the family likely would have resulted in them being split up as buyers pick and chose different members of the family. The loss of all personal possessions just makes matters worse. And after recognizing this terrible situation that the servant is in, he makes a a last-ditch effort in pleading with the king. Look at verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. He literally fell down, plunged himself to the ground and begged. It is a demonstration of the the utmost submission to this king. He says, have patience. It's a request for delayed judgment. Just give me some time, king. Just give me time and and, and I'll I'll withhold your punishment and I'll, I'll pay you. Reality is this is nothing more than a desperate attempt to save his own skin. The servant definitely would have known that he was completely incapable of fulfilling that promise to the king. There's absolutely no way he could repay this amount. He's just trying anything to escape this horrible situation for himself and for his family. In this hopeless situation, with little hope of escaping his doom, he then experiences something absolutely life-transforming. Look at verse 27. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. The king is moved with compassion for this man. I love this word. The word compassion here is the same word used of Christ all throughout the gospels when he saw the the crowd as sheep without a shepherd, when he saw the crowd that was hungry following him, When he saw a large crowd and he healed their sick and on and on and on. 
This is actually the only time in the book of Matthew that this word is used and it's not talking about Jesus. The word literally refers to your internal organs, which was then uh, viewed as the seat of your emotions. His compassion motivated the king not only to release the servant, but to completely forgive his unpayable debt. When someone has this kind of compassion, they experience the sorrow of another person that they are observing. The hurt and pain and difficulty of one is taken on by another. And that motivates action. Now most, if not all of us in here, are either in debt or have been in debt before at some point. So you know the feeling of debt looming over you. But can you imagine being so far in debt that you literally have no opportunity or ability to ever repay it? No matter how hard you worked or how many jobs you took on, no matter what you did, how many cutbacks you made, you'd never be able to repay the debt. Can you imagine the burden of that? There's something to consider here this morning that ought to inform your compassion. And that is that you are in that much debt. You have a, a debt of infinite sinfulness against an infinitely holy God. God has established his righteous standard, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Romans 3.10 explains there's none righteous, not even one. Why? Because Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Lord requires a payment from you of absolute perfection. And try as you might, there is no way to pay off that debt because you have already sinned against an infinitely holy God. You are hopelessly and unimaginably indebted to the king. So then, beloved, as those with an infinite debt of sin against us, it should be no stretch for us to feel compassion for others when they sin. We should ever be ready to see the sin of others and, and recognize, oh, brother, you're, you're sinful. And so am I. You're sinful just like me. And then your heart will break with sorrow for them because you realize However personal the offense may be against you, this is a gospel issue. That person has sinned against a holy God. They're sinful just like I am sinful and both of us are in need of the loving forgiveness of the king. And I don't wanna minimalize others' sins. Some of you have experienced terrible, unfathomable hurt by the sins of others. I'm not saying you ignore the severity or pretend like it didn't happen. I'm not saying you paint on a plastic smile and act like everything's okay and move on like nothing ever happened. How are we to forgive the offenses that so deeply cut us to the core? What are we to do? We look to Christ. We look to Jesus who after a day of brutal torture 
hung on the cross and prayed for his murderers saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The deep, rich theology of the gospel must inform our compassion for others. We must recognize they too are sinful people who are in need of the gospel just like each and every one of us. This is why your forgiveness should be limitless. This is why your forgiveness should be compassionate. Third, your forgiveness should be full. It should be full. This transaction between the servant and the king is almost unbelievable. Why would this king do this? Why would he forgive such an incredible debt? From absolute doom and destruction, this servant now moves to one of glory, freedom, and forgiveness next. Now, the connection here is obvious. This is an extraordinary picture of the forgiveness and freedom that God offers to all who have faith in Christ. Christ offers payment for the unpayable debt. He has accomplished what you are incapable of accomplishing. He offers you the free gift of canceled debt. You are unshackled from sin and freed then to new life. Look at Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. If you are a Christian this morning, you stood condemned before the king just like that servant with the certificates of debt against him. Yet Christ held your certificates of debt in his hands as the nails pierced them through. Jesus explains in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. There is doom and punishment ahead for those who have no faith in Christ. But if you believe in the sinless life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ as payment for the debt of sin that you have, then you will receive eternal life instead of judgment. Your debt has been forgiven, the certificate taken away, and nailed to the cross. Praise the Lord, amen? Amen. Unimaginable debt but forgiveness and freedom granted. Beloved, this is an example of the forgiveness that we are to follow. It's not just an example of a king in a story. It's a very personal example of your king, your heavenly father, who has fully forgiven your debt. It is not a forgiveness with conditions to be met. It is not Forgiveness of I'll go this far and you come the rest of the way. No, it is full forgiveness. It is full and complete forgiveness at the expense and the personal sacrifice of Christ himself. Well, the application here is hopefully obvious. Free and full forgiveness in the likeness of the free and full forgiveness given to us through the cross. What offense Has someone committed against you that you are unwilling to forgive? 
What offense do you cling to that is greater than the infinite offense of your sin against a holy God? Is your standard of holiness higher than God's that you can't forgive someone that he can? If there's someone in your life you're struggling to forgive, you need to take a closer look at your own relationship with Christ and remember how much you've been forgiven. When you see others who have sinned against you, your response should be a heart of compassion that sees a reflection of your own sin that leads you to abundantly forgive. There's no doubt the servant was likely overwhelmed and incredibly joyful in thinking on his debt being forgiven. I can imagine the king announcing his forgiveness. He probably shouted out a, a loud exclamation of joy. Not only he, but also everyone in the royal court was probably astounded with the king's decree and gracious gift. And unfortunately, it's not how this story ends. Kind of want to like, okay, let's close in prayer. It's forgiven, it's joyful. If I didn't know about the next couple of verses, I would picture this guy running out of the king's court, clicking his heels, high-fiving people, kissing babies, <laughs> buying everyone lunch. He doesn't have money for that. That's how he should have left, right? And in verses 28 through 33, we see how he responds, and we also see the fourth attribute of true forgiveness, and that's that your forgiveness should be demonstrated. It should be demonstrated, though, as we'll see here, it's not by this servant. Look at verse 28. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii, And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. The very start of this section begins with but and turns into a negative mood here. The servant who's just been forgiven such an impossible debt, left the king's presence, found a fellow servant who owed him some money. And the the interesting thing here is the difference in how much was owed. Did you catch that? The fellow servant owed him 100 denarii. So you remember, that's one denarius a day, so this is about 100 days' wages. The debt owed to this servant was a fraction of the amount he owed to the king, The fraction, I did some more math again, the fraction is actually one six hundred thousandth the debt. One six, he's attempting to, he's just been forgiven this massive debt and he's going out and trying to collect one six hundred thousandth the amount he's just been forgiven. He found the other servant and he's infuriated about the debt. He sees him, chokes him, while doing this demands that he pays back what is owed. Pay it back, I want it now. The fellow servant responds to him, verse 29, have patience with me and I will repay you. Does that sound familiar? It's almost exactly, almost exactly the behavior and wording 
he himself used to plead with the king moments earlier, fell to the ground, begged for patience. But rather than having compassion on his fellow servant, the text says that he was unwilling. It could literally be translated, but no, he refused. Not only was he unwilling to just forgive the debt, he's unwilling to give the servant time to repay the debt. This debt, unlike his own, was completely repayable. A hundred days, a little over three months' wages, it may have taken some time to work it out, but it is very doable. Instead, he throws him into prison until he could pay back what was owed. Well, how much do you think they made in prison back then? They didn't make anything. He essentially throws him in jail for a life sentence. And look at verse 31. It didn't go unnoticed. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. The actions of this servant were observed and the injustice noted by several others and they went to explain it to the king. They're distressed. This is extreme emotional upset described here. They are appalled. They cannot believe what they've just witnessed. I think we'd all agree, right? We read this and we're like, this is an atrocious perversion of justice. This is unbelievable. You want to like go tackle the guy. You know, it's like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? I think, I think we all agree with that. Most people who read this story are disgusted with this man's actions. But Jesus' point here is that anytime you can't forgive someone, you're responding just like him. You won't forgive someone a, a fraction of the amount of what you've been forgiven by, by the Lord. That's the point the king makes next. King calls the servant to him in verse 32. Says, summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. He points out his obvious failure. The, the term wicked slave means morally and socially worthless, evil, vile. It's a stern rebuke of this man's character. What are you thinking? After just being forgiven a far greater debt, it's a no-brainer this servant should have turned and done the same to his fellow servant. The king continues, forgave you all because you pleaded with me, verse 33, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? This is Jesus' overarching point. One mark of a true believer is forgiveness toward those around just as you have been forgiven by Christ. That's the call of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. One commentator states, the Lord was teaching that forgiveness ought to be in direct proportion to the amount forgiven. The first servant had been forgiven all and in turn he should have forgiven all. A child of God has all his sins forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, when someone sins against him, he ought to be willing to forgive from the heart no matter how many times the act occurs. As believers, having been forgiven an infinite debt, we should therefore be willing to forgive 
an infinite amount of offenses. And here's the deal. You don't forgive people because they are lovely and forgivable. You don't forgive people because it's the right thing to do. You forgive people because it is out of an overflowing love and gratitude for the love that Christ has poured on you in forgiveness. When you truly understand the magnitude of the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf to forgive your sin, it becomes an act of love and worship to forgive others and you, you point to the gospel in that. You point them to Jesus in that. It is a, a living picture of the gospel in your life. Do they deserve forgiveness? No, they don't, quite frankly. You often feel that way. But neither did you when God poured his wrath out on his son instead of you. Titus 3, 3 through 5 explains, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Beloved, you've been forgiven much, and so therefore you should forgive much. Your forgiveness as a child of the king in the kingdom of heaven, should first be limitless, it should be compassionate, it should be full, it should be demonstrated, and fifth, finally, your forgiveness should be sincere. I'll get, I'll get there. It should be sincere. Look in your Bibles at verses 34 and 35. His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So in the king's anger, he turns him over, throws him in prison. So let's address the immediate concern that arises from this passage and then we'll get to the heart of this passage, you may be thinking if the king is handing him over to the torturers, took back his forgiveness, does that mean we can lose our salvation? It's an obvious question that arises out of this passage. I want to be very clear. If you have faith in Christ, then your salvation is secure in Christ. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation you are divinely protected by the righteousness of Christ. John 10, 27 through 29, Jesus explains this. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish for no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. You are in Christ's hand and in the father's hand and you cannot be taken out. You cannot lose your salvation because your salvation is a work that God accomplishes, not a work that you accomplish. It's not dependent upon you. 
Remember, through this parable, Christ is displaying a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven, and that is forgiveness. True believers, as members of that kingdom, won't live a life of begrudging unforgiveness toward one another. Jesus says this another way in Matthew 6, 15, if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. He's explaining that if if you don't forgive others as a habitual pattern in your life, it's simply evidence that you were never saved to begin with. You never truly believed in Christ. To live a life of continuous unforgiveness is to live a life that demonstrates you yourself are unforgiven. True believers will forgive from the heart. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't struggle at times. It doesn't mean that they'll never hold a grudge, but rather it means that their hearts will not remain in that position. They will ultimately come to a place where they will forgive. The unforgiving servant in this parable is a a picture of an unbeliever who doesn't recognize the free and amazing gift that's been offered by the king. And so the king pronounced a similar judgment on the first servant that he had pronounced on his fellow servant. And likewise, Jesus says, my father, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive from the heart. In short, you will go to hell for all of eternity if your life is characterized by unforgiveness Because remember, it's a demonstration that you don't believe the truth. You don't have faith in Christ and are not part of that kingdom that is so characterized by forgiveness. Now to get to the heart of these verses here, what does it mean to forgive your brother from the heart or as I'm saying, with sincerity? The word forgiveness could be translated to, to send away or to let go gives the idea of getting rid of something, throwing it out, letting it go. What's the opposite of that? You're not throwing something out, you're clinging tightly to it. You're hanging on to it. You won't let it go. Rather than being able to move on from past offenses, you cling to them and allow the thorns of unforgiveness to take root. Doing this promotes bitterness, frustration, distrust, and anger in your life. So we must let go, we must send out What does this look like? How do you forgive someone from the heart sincerely? Let me give you quickly four promises you make to everyone every time you tell them you forgive them or that you should make. These are taken out of The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Many of you maybe have read that book. First promise is I promise never to dwell on it again. I promise to never dwell on it again. Dwelling on sin is not forgiving from the heart, right? You maybe said the words, you don't believe them if you're still hanging on to it on the inside. That's just bitterness. When you forgive, you release that offense. And this doesn't mean that the offense may not pop into your mind sometimes, but it's not going to be something that you dwell on regularly, not something that consumes your thoughts. Second promise, I promise never to bring it up again to use against you. I promise to never bring it up again to use against you. This is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Love does not take into account wrong a wrong suffered. It's not hanging on to it so that it, you know, the 
the opportune moment in an argument, you're like, oh yeah, well you did that too, right? It's not, that's not true forgiveness. The key here is using it against them. It promotes division rather than peace. Now sometimes you might bring up someone's sin to them if you notice a pattern of sin in their life. That's not the same, that's for their benefit. That's trying to help them, right? But when you bring it up, you bring up someone's sin to use against them, that's not forgiveness. That tears them down. Promise three, I promise to never bring it up to others again. Right? You hear people talk about others all the time. Right? You'll never believe what so-and-so did to me. I can't even believe it. Right? Is that true forgiveness? If you're going and turning and then slandering that person behind their back? Should never be the case in church, right? When a sin is forgiven, it is gossip, it is slander to then go and to talk about that person behind their back to someone else. Outside of getting help for someone who is unrepentant and stuck in sin, you have no reason to bring up another person's sin to someone else, especially if they've confessed it and you've forgiven. It also tears down and brings division. Fourth promise, I promise, I will not allow it to stand between us or hinder our relationship. Through forgiveness, you can usually continue your relationship just as we have the joy of unhindered fellowship and a loving relationship with God in spite of our sin. We're forgiven, we can continue. I said usually, intentionally, because it's important to to note that forgiveness does not mean that there's no consequences. Just because someone says, I forgive you, does not mean you will have no consequences in your life as a result of your sin. One of those consequences could be a loss of trust, right? It's foolishness to blindly trust someone who continues to commit the same sin, right? That's not using wisdom. An abusive person can be forgiven, but wisdom will move forward protecting the victim from harm in the future. But in our normal interactions, in the body of Christ with one another, more often than not, the offenses against us should not be the cause to hinder an ongoing relationship and friendship with one another. If you can sincerely make those four promises, then you're forgiving from the heart with sincerity. Conversely, if you cannot let the person's sin get out of your mind, if you're constantly dwelling on it, if you're holding it over their head, if you're gossiping to others, if it's a source of constant quarreling and conflict in your relationship with them moving forward, you've not truly forgiven them. we've worked through this passage, you may have someone who comes to mind that you need to forgive. Maybe more than one person. Maybe someone that you told that you forgave them, but you've been harboring bitterness and those vines are growing out of control in your heart. Today, you need to look at your unimaginable debt that's been forgiven by the king and let that drive you to compassion to fully and freely forgive. Let's bring this home to discipleship in community. Why is this a non-negotiable of discipleship in community? I think the implications are obvious. Wherever bitterness and unforgiveness live, discipleship will die. Wherever forgiveness and compassion live, discipleship will thrive because we will be lovingly concerned with the growth of one another. This is the kingdom of heaven, marked with free, 
and full forgiveness of God's children. It is a kingdom of forgiveness. So let us live as members of that kingdom today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the incredible sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Too often, Lord, we neglect considering how great our own sin was against you. Too often we let petty differences divide rather than looking to Christ and being willing to forgive. Help us, Lord, to be like Christ. Help us to model our love for one another after him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.